Hi, I'm Brett Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Every attempt to isolate a cause to explain the war on vaping faces its difficulties, as no cause is entirely defective in explanation, yet neither is any satisfyingly sufficient to explain the level of hysteria engulfing the nation. Clues are best found by examining similar, similar phenomenon, and there's no better example than the decades-long battle in the war on drugs. Are there similarities between the war on drugs and the war on vaping? And could the vaping battle be lost? Joining us today to help answer these questions is Ethan Nadelman, founder and former director of the Drug Policy Alliance and member of the advisory board of the Open Societies Foundation Global Drug Policy Project. For three decades, Nadelman led the fight to end the war on drugs, so he knows better than anyone else the dehumanizing, slanderous, coercive tactics used by moral crusaders. Today, he sees those same tactics deployed against vaping, raising his ire and compelling him to join the fight, which he did most splendidly last month at the e-cigarette forum uh, summit in London. All right, one second. Still the vagaries of our live. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us here today on RegWatch. Uh, it's my pleasure to be on, on the show with you, Brad. Yeah, well, it was. Uh, it's always a roller coaster ride. I can tell you that right now. And let's hopefully the content will deliver today too. Ethan, the three decades of doing battle in the war on drugs. It's obviously it's going to be hard to pick a specific time and place to start. So let's begin with some explaining. What is the war on drugs, and what's been your role in fighting it? Yeah, I mean, the war on drugs is typically referred to to the massive criminalization and uh, prosecution and demonization of people who use the drugs that are currently illicit. So that was marijuana, although that's changing now as a result of our um, relatively successful campaign over recent decades, but also drugs like cocaine and heroin, methamphetamine, the hallucinogens. It's really the policies that resulted in millions, tens of millions of Americans being arrested on illicit drug charges for possession or sale or production or, or, uh, or dealing of these substances. Uh, it's the ones that resulted in millions of people being incarcerated. Uh, and of course, there's been a huge element of racial disproportionality and racism in this whole war on drugs, with people, black and brown people, being arrested and locked up at much greater rates than white people, even though they're oftentimes more, no more likely to be involved in the using or selling of these drugs. It's also involved the stigmatization and demonization of people who use these drugs. It's involved the distortions of evidence. It's involved the corruption of government agencies where they become anti-drug propagandists rather than legitimate funders of scientific research, right? It's been a campaign in which the U.S. government played a leading role in proselytizing for a global war on drugs for much of the last century, uh, and result, the result of which has been a kind of almost global consensus at times for the criminalization of drugs, as well as highly punitive policies all around the world. So it's that whole thing, Brent, that whole, that whole mess of policies. And the opposite of the war on drugs is drug policy reform. It's basically those efforts that seek to roll back or reverse the harms of the war on drugs, wherever they may be, on criminal justice policy, on health policy, on foreign policy, on, uh, on civil liberties, on human rights, uh, you name it. Right. And so the drug policy reform effort has been the thing that I've been deeply involved in um, really since the late 1980s. 
So let's oh, let's jump to vaping. And uh, do you get that echo? Did you no, that I'm, okay. I'm okay. okay. Okay, good. Yeah. Just checking on that. All right. And you know, part of the problem for me is that all my drug flashbacks, you know, have these echoes happening during my live. Uh -huh. But uh, all right. So let's have a quick listen to we've got a short soundbite from your keynote address at the ESIG Summit in London. So this is 2019, just last month. And it was it's a big deal that you're involved. And, and I'll hammer this home as we go further and further for our audience, but to have you come essentially on side of what is the war on vaping, um, and we'll talk about that, is a massive deal for so many people. And for those that you don't know who you are, keep listening to what Ethan's talking about because the perspective that he's bringing is from a global battle against the war on drugs, and there's so many similarities. Let's have a quick listen to what Ethan Nadelman had to say at the eSig Summit. The latest polls from Reuters and, uh, and, and Kaiser, 62 to 70% of Americans now believe that vaping nicotine is as or more dangerous than smoking cigarettes. 62 to 70% believe something that is diametrically the opposite of the truth. And when I see that kind of gap happening between what the science and evidence and public health and human rights says should be policy and where the government and the public opinion and others are going, that to me is horrifying. It also means that there's an opportunity and a need to really galvanize and begin to do things differently, especially in my country, but to some extent around, around the rest of the world. So what do you mean by that? Start describing for us some of the key similarities that you're seeing. Well, I mean, I mean, I have to tell you, uh, you know, what, you know, I, 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 did, I did a TED Talk on, on the drug issue and the drug war issue, five, I think it was five years ago, uh, down in, South, uh, in, in Rio de Janeiro. And one of the points I made there that was what brought me in to stir up my desire to get involved in drug policy reform, both my intellectual interest in drug and my interest personally to be involved in the advocacy, was the more that I looked at the scientific and historical and policy research on illicit drugs, the more I realized the extent to which a, an intelligent drug control policy should be headed in one direction toward treating drugs primarily as a health issue, whereas public opinion and the politicians and the media coverage were all going the opposite direction. And that struck me as something that was profoundly wrong. It sound, struck me as something that was not going to be fixed simply by continuing in an academic role, that this had to be taken on in a much more powerful role. And, you know, you know, I spent 30 years working, you know, building my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, and getting deeply involved in all the ballot initiatives with, of legalizing marijuana for medical purposes and then more broadly for adults and, and doing initiatives on, on trying to get rid of mandatory minimum drug sentences and advocating for treatment instead of incarceration and harm reduction policies like needle exchange and uh, to reduce the spread of HIV among drug addicts and drug users and trying to reduce overdose fatalities, all of these things we sort of built up. And I felt that a few years ago, when I decided to step down from running Drug Policy Alliance, which had become the leading organization in really in the world advocating for alternatives to the war on drugs, I felt like with marijuana, you know, we had gone from, I mean, when I started, barely 25% of the public thought that marijuana should be legal, and it was not legal in any state for anything. And by the time we hit, you know, early 2017, you now have roughly 60% of Americans believing that marijuana should be legally available for adults, roughly 30 states legalizing it for medical, and eight states um, legalizing it for all adults and more, you know, in the pipeline. So 
So I felt we'd had a major success in transforming both public opinion and public law. And when it came to taking on the, the drug war elements of mass incarceration, there's still a long way to go with that. But just as the, the war on drugs had driven mass incarceration in the United States in the 80s and 90s and early aughts, so drug policy reform became the cutting edge of prison and criminal justice reform beginning in the late 90s in the aughts, right? So I thought we, we really had some substantial success on this front. And even on harm reduction with needle exchange programs and overdose prevention and making naloxone available to prevent overdose fatalities, we've had a lot of progress. I mean, it's notable that dealing with the, drug, the issue of illicit drugs until not too long ago was regarded as the third rail of American politics. And for your listeners who don't know what that means, the third rail is that electrified rail in New York City subways where if you touch it, you die, right? <laughs> but if you look last year and say, I think it was last year, 2018, there was virtually no legislation through the U.S. Congress with bipartisan support and was signed by President Trump. And two of the only examples were one to basically reduce or eliminate mandatory minimum sentences for, for drug law violations, and the other was to deal with the opioid crisis. So we were successful in moving an issue from being a fringe issue, one that no politician wanted to touch, to one where, in fact, we were making major success. States were legalizing marijuana. Congress did begin to do the right thing. And now, you know, I've been following this whole issue around e-cigs and tobacco harm reduction sort of casually for many years, it seemed to me that it resonated with harm reduction with illicit drugs. But what's happened in the last six months, first with San Francisco deciding to ban all e-cigarettes and then with the rush to ban flavored e-cigarettes or all e-cigarettes that are not tobacco flavored in you know Michigan and New York and Massachusetts, a whole bunch of other places. And then with President Trump initially looking like he was going to nationalize this sort of ban. And with the... I just started following this much more closely, and I started devoting dozens, if not hundreds of hours to reading closely the scientific literature and to following the media closely on this, both in the United States and around the world. And what increasingly strikes me is that what's going on right now is quite similar to what was going on with illicit drugs in the 1980s. The big exception being you don't have mass criminalization and mass incarceration and mass involvement in the criminal justice system as yet. Right. right? As yet. I look at this, you, the, the, the clip you just showed to me, when 60 to 70 percent of the American public thinks that vaping is as or more dangerous than smoking cigarettes, which not just the Royal College of Physicians, but the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine, America's most elite scientific body, even the Center of Disease Control, in the midst of this mass campaign to miseducate the public, you look at its website and it says, if you smoke cigarettes and you're not pregnant, you should switch to e-cigarettes, basically. So the fact that you have this massive gap and growing gap between what the public believes and what the science says, I mean, that has potentially horrific consequences from a public health perspective. I mean, there's still 13% of the country that's smoking cigarettes in the United States. There's, you know, what, a billion plus smokers all around the world. I mean, ideally, you want everybody to know that if they've tried to quit smoking either by going cold turkey or using the patches of the gums of the pharmaceuticals and it hasn't worked, definitely you have to give e-cigarettes a shot. But to have people believing that that's actually a stupid thing to do, that's horrific. And the second point, Brent, I'll finish with this, is that... Once you start banning things, 
you know, which I mean, it, that's what we're doing now. When you start banning things and making it illegal to possess or to sell or whatever these things, inevitably you have to start enforcing those bans, which means that inevitably the police start to get involved and inevitably the prosecutors start to get involved. And so I think there's a decent chance that we're going to see people not just getting arrested, but even going to jail for violating the laws against vaping. You're going to see people you know, who essentially are trying to protect their health to, to, in, in a harm reduction way that's proven by science, by switching from smoking to vaping, you're going to see those people and the people who supply them and market to them being arrested. And I have to tell you, it reminds me of what happened with needle exchange, where people who were trying to distribute sterile syringes used to spread of HIV, you know, among injecting drug users, were being, were being arrested and incarcerated and prosecuted. I mean, it, it is from both a public health perspective and a moral perspective, absolutely horrific. So let's, because uh, there's obviously a lot there, and we'll get to some of it now, some of it later, and some of it I wish hopefully never. But um, let's start on the harm reduction. You just finished talking about needle exchange. One is surprising to us, and for the four years that we've been covering this, so I've been in broadcasting for 30 years here in Canada, lived and worked in the United States, done a lot of high-level marketing too as well, so I, I know both countries very well. And um, the issue of harm reduction, public health, progressivism, and so forth, especially living here in Vancouver, right beside the downtown east side. I mean, downtown east side's four blocks away from sure. this studio right here. So the ramifications of you know an uh, an, an out of control, um, you know you know hard drug use or lack of the better word, you know, for it, the whole fentanyl issue and stuff like that. I mean, Vancouver has been ground zero for that, but not only that. Vancouver has also been ground zero for harm reduction. And Dr. Mark Tyndall, um, who's been on our show many times, who's a huge supporter of vaping as a tool for harm reduction, is the one that, uh, you know, in North America set up the very first um, safe injection site, which I'm sure, of course, you know, um, is uh, Insight here. And so we did that in 2004, of course, with everybody else that they're working with. So that's Mark Tyndall. I, I talk to him all the time about this because there's this hypocrisy of harm reduction. The, the people that you would think would be, uh, the, you know, would understand vaping as a tool for harm reduction are the most adamant against vaping. They are literally the largest opponents almost in every single case. They've got no problem in Canada legal and in the U.S., I'm sure, not to you know, broad brush it, but they've got no problem legalizing cannabis, which, of course, its basic premise was a medicinal uh, argument. So that is a harm reduction argument. And then all of the other aspects of cannabis that are harm reduction, you know, it's better than alcohol, it's better on you than alcohol, it's better for the family and the kids and everybody else if it's marijuana. I mean, the promise of marijuana cannabis is a harm reduction argument, right? So, and then you've got obviously all the harm reduction when it comes to heroin and fentanyl and everything else. The people that drive that, who fight for that, are not allies of vaping to a large degree and and to and to a very big degree i get a sense that they don't appreciate that the vaping movement uses harm reduction as a part of their argument they don't they don't think it's valid yeah That's well i mean i mean brent so I, I think here's how i understand i mean first of all just to break it down a bit um within the movement right 
for drug policy reform and, and harm reduction. And drug policy reform and harm reduction overlap dramatically. Like if I, sometimes I would say, would say, what's the difference between drug policy reform and harm reduction? I would draw two rectangles intersecting one another where 70% of drug policy reform and harm reduction are basically the same. Mm. And then harm reduction takes on some issues outside the issue of drugs that drug policy reform does. And in drug policy reform, deals with issues around marijuana or sentencing reform or asset forfeiture reform that harm reduction maybe doesn't. But I would say that within the global harm reduction movement, a lot of the leaders do get it, right? So, for example, Pat O'Hare, who is the founder of the International Harm Reduction Association, that's now called Harm Reduction International, the leading global harm reduction organization, he's a huge proponent of tobacco harm reduction. His successor, a British academic named Jerry Stimson, when he stepped down from running Harm Reduction International, he then started the Global Forum on Nicotine, you know, which has every year, I think, meetings in Warsaw and puts out the, the book Global State of Harm Reduction. And he's really done some pivotal work. I mean, probably the principal person moving from the illicit drug harm reduction area into tobacco harm reduction. Sure. Alex Wodak, who has been for decades a leading advocate of drug law reform in Australia, based in Sydney, working on drug treatment. He is now passionate on this issue as well. So I feel like in my stepping up on this issue, I'm sort of joining a lot of good company. When okay. I talk to the people more broadly involved in illicit harm reduction, whether it's on, you know, on overdose prevention, whether it's on bringing in European models or Vancouver-like models of providing uh, prescription heroin for people who can't quit using street heroin, the clean needles, safe injection sites, all the things that you're talking about, most of those people... It, it, actually and intuitively get it. So it's not so much the field of illicit drug harm reduction, which is not getting the tobacco harm reduction area. For them, it's really an area of priorities where there's so much to be done with fentanyl out there and with the still HIV continuing, hep C continuing and limited resources and the drug war, you know, all around the world. So it's really much more a matter of priority. What's so uh, just, to no, me, let me do one second, just I want to make sure that, uh, so, uh, I'm also talking, though, about actual public health workers, like the actual... Well, so no, let me get to that. What, okay. I, what, I, what my frustration is that when I look at the people, especially the elected officials and the people in the public health agency, right, and what I see there is that they've been our allies. And sometimes, and then I, what it does is ask me, well, why were, they, why, why were they our allies? Was it because they intuitively and instinctively got harm reduction? And I think on some level, I now realize it wasn't as much about that as it was about certain other things. So what's different about this issue now? One thing, for example, is that with, with the whole war on drugs, the issue of racism and racial injustice and racial disproportionality was much greater, much more, much more profound. You don't really yet have this issue in the fight over e-cigarettes. You have a class issue. Right, where smoking is now disproportionately concentrated among people of lower income, but it continues to be more of a white class issue, or it's also to some extent a Native American thing. Right, but so you don't have that issue, which has become an ever more important focus of a lot of the advocacy around drug policy and harm reduction. The second element, right, is that you have the history of big tobacco. 
right? I mean, most of us grew up, you know, hating big tobacco. You know, my father died at age 58, and where his obesity and cigarette, you know, pack a day cigarette smoke habit were probably, you know, the key factors in his having a massive heart attack and dying young. So we've all grown up hating big tobacco, and they're lying and cheating and all of this stuff. And so seeing them being involved in any way in this area, or even the emergence of companies like Juul before they sold a piece of themselves to Altria, or the Enjoys of the others, which have nothing to do with big tobacco, they're trying to put big tobacco out of business, right? Even so, you know, there's that element because of the conflation of tobacco and nicotine that causes that to happen. The third thing, and this is particularly galling for me, you know, my personal politics are left of center. Most of my major um, political advocacy involved engaging primarily people who are in the progressive community and the Democrats and left of center in the U.S. and their you know, analogous political parties outside the United States and then building some lines with people who are more on the right. But what you have also, I think, among politicians more on the left is a very strong anti-corporate ideology. And there's the fact that in this issue that the interests of harm reduction align with those of big industry, right? And and that that anti-corporatism that you see. So like, right now, you know, I live in New York, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing this interview with you from a, a friend's place in San Francisco. Some of my best political allies out here, right, on issues like legalization of marijuana for medical and then broader purposes, uh, injection sites, on needle exchange, or you, you name it, right? This issue, when I start going at them with the science and the arguments, the evidence, and almost always the response is, but the industry, the industry, the industry, they're for-profit-driven thing. And, they, and I think, but the hell with the industry. The whole point here is what's going to be the best thing for public health? What's going to reduce the number of people dying from tobacco-related illnesses? What's going to cut smoking? What's going to do this? And they keep up. They don't want to take the evidence on, on, on directly. They want to retreat to say, but the industry did this, the industry that. Jewel drafted that initiative. You know, I didn't like the fact that San Francisco banned it, but 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 Jewel writing initiative is totally inappropriate. Or they're now part of Altria, or big tobacco this, or big tobacco that. And then you have Michael Bloomberg's massive money, hundred sixty million dollars committed, and that money. I think while I applaud his efforts to go after big tobacco and cigarette smoking. His commitment now to go after vaping and to do it in the way he's doing with such a huge amount of money and in such an incredibly intellectually dishonest way, I think is going to undermine a huge part of the progress that he made with his funding to the anti-smoking effort. So let me just, uh, there's a lot there. So uh, just on the tobacco, big tobacco side, let me share with you something I've been sharing with my viewers non, you know, constantly, beating them down over the head with this, right, is that... Big tobacco is a reality, right? Vaping is always going to be, as Sean Casey from Flavor Art, one of our great supporters at RegWatch, you know, said, you know, you got to understand we are, you know, the ugly second cousin of, of cigarettes, and that's never going to change, right? And without understanding that, we're kind of stuck in spinning our wheels. And in fact, we'll, we'll, we'll be feeding and repeating some of the same arguments against the, the big tobacco industry as opponents would, when really, and this is what I'm offering, is that we really should be saying that as long as these companies are selling a product that the government is continually going to make legal, it, that's not going to change anytime soon, these companies need to have all pressure put on them in order to change their product offering to be something that kills less or kills none at all. 
And so, I mean, that's just a, I mean, there's a history. No, I, mean, but I, mean, I think that's exactly right. Because if you think about how change might happen in this area, you really need two things. One is you need the independent companies that have no investment by Big Tobacco, which now, which used to be Juul, and now includes Enjoy and, and obviously all the smaller vaping companies, vape shops, all those things, which, which were very um, which were which were very anti big tobacco, right? You need them basically in play. You need them trying to market their product as aggressively as possible to current smokers. You need them trying to do everything possible to put big tobacco out of business. That provides the incentive for big tobacco to also get in play area. You don't want to leave the entire you know e-cigarette business in the hands of big tobacco. You want them involved. You want them to be incentivized to move, to shift from being in the cigarette delivery business to being in the nicotine delivery business in the least harmful forms of nicotine, right? You, you want them to do that, and that is what they're beginning to do, but you don't want to leave it up to them to control the pace at which they move. Because at this point, as I understand it, their profit margins are still higher with cigarettes than they are with e-cigarettes. Down the road, that might change. But for now, you don't want you don't want the heads of big tobacco saying, oh, my God, our cigarette sales are dropping too fast because e-cigs are increasing too fast. Let's slow the whole thing down. They need to continually be challenged. What worries me about this whole FDA process as I'm learning more about it is that what it's likely going to do I mean, unless Trump does something here, it could well put out of business all the smaller vaping, you know, the vape, the vape shops, the vapors, all of those things, because they can't do that FDA process, right? It may put out of business, I don't know, Enjoy, which I think is the number two after Juul in the United States, which has no big tobacco money, right? We'll see what it does to Juul, because Juul is so much in the, you know, you know, in, in the crosshairs right now of FDA and everybody. I mean, the single most hated company in America, I think, right now, more than even the big tobacco companies. Except for Peloton. Peloton. What's okay. Peloton? <laughs> it's the bike company. They make the exercise bikes. And they, oh, is that right? Is that they, right? Did an, they did an ad that Twitter went nuts on. And they're, uh, I see. I uh, see. Okay. Sorry. Peloton. But, but, I mean, you, you, the, there's a possibility that a few years from now, when the FDA finally gets through its process, when it finally acknowledges the science that e-cigarettes are substantially safer than smoking, you know, and that perhaps the risk even of young people, not young people, young people taking up e-cigarettes who would not have smoked is real, but it's nothing to, it's not at all consistent with the fears that are being expressed by all these, you know, parent, parents, anti-vape groups. When they finally get through the science, you may be left with a situation where the only businesses left selling e-cigs are the big tobacco cigarette companies. Uh, well, that could be May. That could be May of this coming year. Well, I think even after May, right, the, the e-cig companies will still be able to sell their products until the FDA issues a ruling. That's my understanding, but I'm not an expert on this process. It, well, it, unless there's changes, uh, it, it's going to mean 11,000 retail stores closing because right. most of the e-juice companies are not are not going through PMTA. So, I mean, well, I am very curious to see what Trump does about this. I mean, I tell you, I have to tell you for me, I mean, I think Donald Trump is the worst thing happened to my country, the United States of America since the Civil War. I think it's a disgrace that he's actually our national leader. I mean, it's, it's horrible. But to actually watch that video of him 
you know, having the discussion with all the people from all sides of the issue. And he's actually, you can see, he's torn and he's ambivalent about what to do. And the guy, I'm the guy, I can't think how bizarre it was to watch Donald Trump acting almost presidential. Yes. Right? You're trying to figure out what's the right thing to do here. How do you protect the kids and at the same time protect both the businesses and the ability of smokers to switch easily to an e-cigarette and thereby improve their health? And you can see, you know, he got pulled into this by his wife because, you know, Melania was freaked out that maybe their son was vaping or his son's friends were vaping. And then, you know, the people at the Health and Human Services, they say, yeah, 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 you should do this. And then meanwhile, you know, the vapors get organized and, and Grover Norquist's organization, the Americans for Tax Reform, and his aide, uh, Paul Blair, Paul Blair yeah. on this, and they start showing these are real voters and people who care. And you actually saw some real activism. Yeah. And also, very similar, you know, the motto, nothing about us without us. Nothing about us without us is something that you heard people saying who are illicit drug users. Don't make drug policies that affect our lives and well-being without us being at the table. And now you hear people in the tobacco harm reduction area saying the same thing. You know, and, I mean, even the other analogy, you know, the, the whole thing about methadone, right? If you're addicted to illegal heroin, all of the science, World Health Organization, National Academy of Science, you know, Health and Human Services, all the science shows that if you're addicted to illicit heroin, you can't stop, what you should do is switch over to methadone or now buprenorphine as well, right? And that science has been out there for decades. But the popular stigma and opposition where people would say, oh, why would I switch from illegal heroin to methadone? That's just substituting one addiction for another. Or I'm just going to be addicted to methadone as well. Or methadone, that's you know, poor black drug users use. I'm a middle class, you know, heroin addict. Why would I do that? Or, or the notion that methadone only be used to detox from heroin addiction rather than be a, multi a medication that you use for many years, if not a lifetime. Yeah. Once again, all the analogies, right, playing over here to these cigarette addictions. Yeah, well, exactly, because it's all about uh, it's all about this group of people, the morality of it. Um, either banning it or wanting to control it because you know what? They know what's better for you. They know what's for your own good. You mentioned the Trump uh, 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 meeting at the White House with both sides of the industry. So I have queued up, as you know, uh, the short bite with Meredith Beckman from PAVE, which is the Parents Against Vaping and Everything Else in the World, I'm sure. So let's have a quick listen for this. Uh, I know that my audience uh, will enjoy seeing it again. I understand this is an important conversation about jobs, but I'm here because our group represents millions of families of moms all across this country and dads across this country and grandparents. You can go to any state in this country and ask people with children. This is what people are worried so about. So what do you like as a solution? So I will tell you that this is a generation of children that would otherwise not have been initiated into tobacco use. And we know that because the youth use figures were at the lowest they'd ever been before Juul came on the market with their patented nicotine salt technology with huge amounts of nicotine going to the brain so quickly. That's why the kids talk about the head rush. This addiction is severe addiction. This is 
enormous amounts of nicotine, so much more than in combustible cigarettes. And parents are terrified. We hear this every day from people all across the country, all walks of life, in cities, in suburbs, in the country. And they feel like they've lost their kids. Straight-A students are flunking out of school. Athletes, star athletes, can't run a mile. And what I hear over and over, what we hear all the time is, I, I don't recognize my child. The bout of anger, the pain, parents are in pain, and we need you. So what, are your, uh, what is your solution? I, our solution I mean, is your, your solution. solution. Just ban it, right? No, no, because no, we're no, but not. But if you had a real solution, just ban it, right? No, that's not correct. Uh, what's your solution? My solution is what you had the right instinct for at the beginning which is the flavors have hooked the kids. So take the flavors, leave tobacco flavor for adults. My original adults. suggestion. Your original suggestion, your instinct was right. Go ahead. Leave to, you know, we're not prohibitionists. Leave tobacco flavor for adults. Because in the end, it's not there yet, but if the science ultimately proves that yes, this is going to help people quit, then they should have that right. We have no interest in telling adults what to do. I don't think the science is there yet. I, I think that it, we need more data. It's actually, it's actually, I do want to clarify for everyone's benefit a lot. So uh, that's that, Ethan. So, <laughs> yeah. so go give me, give me, give me your first thoughts here on that. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I can understand uh, parents freaking out when their kids are vaping and sometimes having a hard time stopping vaping. So I get the fear factor that goes on there. Um, but I have to tell you, Brent, I mean, that almost seemed verbatim, the type I used to see from, and maybe still around, from the anti-marijuana parents movement. You know, and marijuana was a drug which is less addictive, but has a bigger psychoactive impact. And so, you know, kids who were waking and baking marijuana, I mean, most kids use marijuana, use it occasionally, but for the kids who are waking and baking, you know, getting up in the morning and smoking all day long, that was not going to be a good thing for their education. So there was a real concern. But then you got these mothers who were saying, we don't recognize our kids. Yeah, right? like I, I mean, what does that thing. mean? I mean, and you're talking about a drug, right? I mean, you know, she's claiming that 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 the e-cigarettes have much more nicotine than cigarettes. I haven't seen any evidence indicating that. That even the Juul 5.0s are approximate what a normal what a pack of cigarettes are going to be, right? The notion of of, of kids you know, their health being horribly undermined by this stuff. I mean, obviously you shouldn't be vaping, but compared to smoking cigarettes, there's a radical difference there claim that the science is not yet in on this, the same thing we heard about, about medical marijuana, the same thing we heard about needle exchange, the same thing the science is in, is in, is in. even with other countries, you got the Royal College of Physicians saying 95% more, more safer, you got the National Academy of Science and Engineering saying safer, and she is saying, oh, she thinks the science is not in, which, by the way, is the same thing that Bloomberg is saying, right? So what you have is, and the question really is, is does she know any better? I mean, does she know any better about this? Million, millions of American families are also concerned about their relatives or the children continuing to smoke and who need to know that switching to e-cigarettes is a dramatic improvement in health. But she expresses only the cursory concern about them. Meanwhile, when she says that we have this massive growth in kids vaping, that's true. But then the question is, how many of those kids who tried vaping, right, the numbers that get all the headlines, are the kids who tried it at least once in the last month? But if you look at how many kids have actually been vaping on a daily basis, how many kids are vaping all day long, you're talking about a dramatically smaller percentage. And then when you look at that percentage of kids, the heavy vapors, it appears to be that most of those 
are kids who had previously tried cigarettes or other tobacco products or are using them simultaneously. And when then you look at the evidence that says that kids who vape are more likely to move on to cigarettes, well, that just makes sense that it would be true because kids who are more likely to take risks or be experimenters, that makes sense. But if you then ask how many kids, what percent of kids are there out there who never tried any tobacco product, then they took up vaping, and then they went from vaping to becoming addicted to cigarettes? My understanding from looking at some of the breakouts of the uh, National Youth Survey on Tobacco Use and all that stuff is that you land up finding less than 1% of all young people who only vape and never did any other tobacco products are now addicted to cigarettes. Maybe those numbers go up slightly in the future. So you have these gross distortions of evidence. And then meanwhile, you have these advocacy groups which are propagating this stuff. You have Bloomberg money flowing everywhere, including to media, oftentimes not reporting that they're getting Bloomberg money. Right? You have the World Health Organization where Bloomberg paid for their tobacco control report, and he's an uh, ambassador for them on non-communicable diseases. But you have the utter corrupt, some of the, the organizations, was it the Lung Association or the Heart or the can whatever these ones are? I mean, they're coming out saying ban all vaping. It's flabbergasting. And then one can say, is this because they're getting money from Bloomberg or because they're getting money from the, the pharmaceutical companies that, that, that produce the smoking cessation products? I don't know. I don't know what's driving their motivation. All I know is that with that woman that you just showed there talking to Trump, what she said was virtually verbatim to the bulk that I heard on the marijuana issue and illicit drug issues in the past. And ultimately, that type of stuff, just like the D.A.R.E. program, just like these hysterical parents, that stuff should not and ultimately will not drive what has to be good policy in the future. The challenge would be, though, is that that level of propaganda can do tremendous harm to the industry. It is doing tremendous harm to the industry and is driving people who were vaping back to smoking and is preventing smokers from considering vaping as a valid tool. So let me let's get into. Oh, wait, Fred, I should just say I would I, the way I would frame this argument. I'm actually in the end not really interested in whether the industry thrives or not. I mean, I care about, you know, people want to make a living and all this. But basically, I constantly have to frame this in terms of public health and, and, and basically human rights, right? Mm -hmm. Every human being in America should have, who has been addicted to cigarettes should have the right to try to find out whatever is available to reduce their smoking. And if they can't quit to have that option available, this is about fundamentally public health. Right. Sure, this is I, balancing I the risk to young people to that. And so I constantly bring it back to that, even while I acknowledge that there are industry interests here involved as well. So here's why, and I'm not shilling for the industry. This is from my, my ideological perspective here, is that we are witnessing what happens when public health is in control of an issue like this. In a moment like that, they can completely, totally lie, take the entire public's perception on an issue and just throw it into the ground, right? So I don't trust public health. I trust capitalism. I trust, I trust a system that innovated from the consumer bottom up. You can't have vaping uh, the way it is today without capitalism. Yeah. The free market. Oh, Brad, Brad, the truth is I trust neither. I trust neither. <laughs> okay. Because on the capitalism side, I mean, you know, essentially we're all capitalists one sure. way or another, and it's not as if there's really an alternative system out there, right? I mean, people call themselves socialists, but they're basically, you know, Northern European capitalists you know, who are choosing to identify as socialists rather than sure. Northern European capitalists. But basically, I don't trust capitalism because in the end, right, 
in the nature of capitalism is that businesses are going to be driven, right, by market forces, by profit seeking, right? And that even if you have companies headed by people who are very well-meaning, big tobacco companies headed by people who want to move away from cigarettes to, you know, harm reduction measures, they still have a bottom line. They still have stock prices to be concerned about. They still have shareholders. They still have investors. But I think when push comes to shove, I mean, I think we're seeing something similar going on as marijuana becomes legalized, right? We knew it would play out this way. You know, we knew it in the abstract. Now we're, we're witnessing it in real time. But basically, capitalism means that profit is what's going to drive this ultimately. It's why I say don't leave the switch from cigarettes to e-cigarettes to tobacco. There needs to be other forces out there. And I don't want government to get in the way Right, of a of a more of a more effective capitalism where the smaller players actually have a chance to succeed and to undermine big tobacco while they also incentivize it to move in the right direction. But meanwhile, public health, you're totally right about that. I saw I mean the way in which the federal government and even the public health agencies, the research agencies, the public health agencies were so compromised and corrupted by the war on drugs, their fear to say the right a lot of these guys would not I mean, they would not meet with me or they would try to get me banned from speaking at conferences, or if they were going to meet with me, they would be in a back room of a bar someplace across the street from the government building. The level of fear that you had in this area, needle exchange, you already had evidence in the 1983-84 coming out of Australia and Western Europe that making sterile syringes available to illicit drug injectors reduced the spread of HIV without increasing drug use. But the U.S. procrastinated, did nothing, the public health authorities did nothing. The research agency avoided it. It took 10, 15 years, and even today, they're barely doing anything, right? The anti-methadone bias. Remember Howard Dean, the governor of, of <laughs> Vermont who ran for president, a former oh, yeah. doctor? He was opposed to methadone maintenance for heroin addicts, right? People had to die on the streets from driving to a methadone clinic over the state border of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, before he finally woke up. You had people with a who have the MD after their name, who have big public health, you know, uh, high-level uh, positions, but who are entirely corrupted, either intellectually or politically, for doing the wrong thing. That's what, of course, you're saying right now on the e-cigarette and tobacco harm reduction area. So I don't so, trust either one. I trust, I trust the honest souls who are not being good. The, uh, the people who are intellectually honest, who are morally, you know, grounded, and the ones who are not corrupted by the funding that they may or may not be receiving from these words. So let me ask you a dual question here uh, that's a follow-up on that. So in August, when news broke nationally regarding this mysterious lung illness that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control should have immediately announced a tainted product uh, scare, like it was a tainted product issue. Instead, they said it was a vaping and e-cigarette issue, oh. and they did that for three months. It was, I mean, their dishonesty, and it wasn't just the dishonesty of CDC and the dishonesty to, to some lesser extent, but also FDA. It wasn't just the dishonesty of the governors and the other public officials and public health officials who started doing this sort of stuff, right? It was also the mainstream media, which should have been looking at this a lot more critically and, and actually basically magnified an incorrect message. And you know what was going on, right? That, that, that dramatic jump in dueling among adolescents had freaked everybody out. They were trying to figure out what to do. And here came this gift in the form of the tainted, you know, tainted illicit THC cartridges, right? And you knew early on that this appeared to be a major part of the problem, if not 90 to 100% of the problem. 
But what did CDC do? Well, we still don't know what's going on. We're still not sure. They used the phrase e-cigarette, even though the phrase e-cigarette is essentially not used in the marijuana vaping community, right? When I, I'm, a, I'm somebody who's, you know, smoked marijuana and uh, marijuana, you know, been vaping and stuff like that for years. We don't use the phrase e-cigarette. E-cigarette is tobacco nicotine. You know what they call the disease? E-valley. Electronic and cigarette and e-cigarette and vaping, you know, ALI, you know, associated lung injury, I think. Like, what? That's an inaccurate labeling of, of the product, right? It wasn't about e-cigarettes being used. I don't know. No, it's, it's propaganda. I mean, that stuff is specific. It's propaganda. And when you have somebody place, I mean, the New York Times, which I think is one of the greatest, most important publications in the world, right? And key defense of democracy. I mean, you know, but I've seen them make terrible mistakes in their coverage of the drug war in the past, whether it was on LSD or MDMA or crack cocaine or even marijuana. I mean, they, you know, all even the greatest will make these mistakes and get caught up in a drug war fervor. And when they took the case of that guy, was it in Nebraska? Some poor fellow who died of this disease and his family was certain he had never vaped marijuana. They put it on the front page of the New York Times and then they developed, then they devoted their special half hour news video of the week to this issue. So rather than highlighting in bold headlines the fact that it was illicit tainted THC vape cartridges that were responsible for 85 to 100 percent of the problem, instead they took the one case that might Possibly, and they don't, as far as I know, they didn't, they didn't even urine test the guy who died, right? All they just said was there was no way he could have done it. So yeah. that type of magnification of gross misinformation, because I'm following the media day by day now, and I see the U.S. papers, I see the Guardian in the U.K., I see now I'm following the news out of Asia where they're just picking up the worst form of the media and the propaganda there, and now promoting their own bans throughout the Asian countries. I mean, it, it is. it reminds me of the reefer madness stuff we saw in marijuana. It reminds me of crack cocaine was a really serious crisis, but the media coverage turned it into a monster that far exceeded the reality. Same thing about heroin, same thing about, I mean, you name it. We're doing with e-cigarettes right now, right? What happened with all the other illicit drugs in the past with disastrous consequences? So this really truly is a war on vaping. Well, I mean, I tell you, when people ask me why I'm involved, the first reason I gave you before was because of this growing disparity between what the scientific evidence says on the one hand and what the public opinion and the politicians believe and do on the other. But the other reason is I think there's a decent possibility that we could be witnessing the beginnings of the first great drug war of the 21st century. And it's going to be a drug war that is going to start off with uh, e-cigarettes, and then it's going to turn to cigarettes themselves. And I mean, mind you, there's a lot more rationale for banning cigarettes than there is e-cigarettes. But let's not forget, I mean, I even tell this to some of my allies in the tobacco harm reduction world who think that, God, if we could only get the percent of Americans who smoke down from 13% today down to 5% or 4%, then we should just ban cigarettes or ban cigarettes with nicotine in them. And what I remind them is that the entire war on drugs, right? I mean, apart from the marijuana piece, which is about arrest, but if you look at the mass incarceration, if you look at the horrifically violent drug wars in Latin America and the Caribbean, now parts of Africa, Asia, what have you, if you look at the massive violation of human rights, all of that involves barely 2% of the U.S. population 
being deeply involved in the consumption of heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and drugs like that, right? So keep that in mind. Even if cigarette smoking goes down dramatically in this country to under 5%, if we make it fully illegal, you're talking about creating a global black market that will rapidly be worth many hundreds of billions of dollars. You're talking about tobacco traficantes replacing the narco traficantes. You're talking about police agencies and dedicated you know, tobacco enforcement agencies. You're talking about widespread drug testing in our society. You're talking about demonization and stigmatization of people. You're talking about parents having their kids ripped away from them at birth or, or young kids because they smoke cigarettes in the house. I mean, you're talking about that's what we had in the illicit drug area. And it was a horrific and remains a horrific violation of human rights in our own, in the United States, and still to some extent in your country, in Canada, and around the world. We're looking at that being a real possibility because wars on drugs feed so many interests. They feed the media interest. They feed our need to have a boogeyman and to stigmatize and demonize others. They, as the as the class composition, as the as a as the class of people who consume these drugs gets lower and lower, relatively speaking, the, the willingness of the rest of society to demonize them and persecute and prosecute them becomes ever greater, right? Because they're no longer, quote-unquote, our people. So I think we're, this is a real possibility, and I'll be damned if I devoted you know, the last 30 years of my life in part to legalizing marijuana and trying to end the war on other illicit drugs, only to be re, you know, stepping down now and witnessing the emergence of a great big new drug war, which would do as much or more harm than those other ones did in the last century. So there is, there is the opportunity then that vaping and the people who use nicotine could be facing 60, 70 years of ostracization, you know, total, complete push down, down to the streets. Yeah, vaping and cigarettes, for that matter, right? Because I hate cigarettes with a passion. You know, my dad died prematurely from, from smoking, probably, right? I mean, so I hate cigarettes, but that doesn't mean we should prohibit it, right? Do everything we can with very tough public health regulatory strategies. Do everything we can with harm reduction strategies. But ultimately, move, do everything we But the notion of trying to create, this is another analogy, of trying to create not a of trying to create a tobacco-free society, or even for that matter, a smoke-free society, when you create an idealistic objective and a utopian objective like that, then what begins to happen, like we did with the, creating a drug-free society, a drug-free world, a drug-free schools, all this, you start to believe that you will do anything, that, there's no, that, that, that you'll spend any amount of money to eliminate this terrible thing from our society. Cost-benefit analyses of different policy options will become irrelevant, and we'll be willing to pay any price and bear any burden in order to drive tobacco consumption, not cigarette smoking or whatever, down as low as possible. What happens is it becomes a lot more like a crusade than it is like a sensible, pragmatic, you know, tobacco or drug control policy. That's the real risk that we're facing right now. Yeah, and definitely crusade is the right word. And so we've got about uh, 10, maybe 12 minutes left here, um, uh, Ethan, and I've got a couple of really key questions. But before we do that, I'd just like to take our audience over to support.regulatorwatch.com, which, of course, is our support website. And um, please, you know, take a poke around. I still got to update it uh, from the D.C. and toss a Christmas message or two there. But if you want to send a Christmas present to RegWatch and help support our content, of course, 
dig into that wallet of yours, find a few dollars and kick it over to us, uh, just like these fine companies have. And uh, great companies are supporting and great people have been supporting too. It's Christmas time, you're flush with some cash. Please uh, consider doing that. That's at support.regulatorwatch.com. Divine Labs in Canada just came on. Of course, Juno and Demand Vape out of the States, Flavor Art, Stealth, and 416 Vapes again in Canada. So really great companies and our one-time heroes and our legacy. And I do promise, definitely at least, it'll be over the holiday for sure. I'll get up the 150 or so uh, names of all of the supporters um, that have individually contributed to RegWatch. We can only make it happen with your guys' help. And it's also, it's the companies, it's the vape shops, and it's the individual people out there that make RegWatch happen. So thank you very much for that. So here's my question for you. And so I'll, uh, I'll try to do, I, I think the, the, there's three really. Uh, one, I wanna know about the reality of, is it possible? I'll just let that hang. Second, I wanna talk about science. And then last, I wanna talk about what they are, people can do to prevent this dystopian disaster that's on the way. So the first one, so the second one is science and the last one is due, got it. All right, so this first one, it's really important I think that our viewers get their back, we get their back here a little bit, if, if you, only if you can. There is a belief that to some extent that the CDC has purposefully lied and, and, and if they did, that means people died when they didn't have to die because they spent three months confusing the issue and still leave it today. They're not even all that clear about it. But I mean, really, they are the focal point agency, the government agency. Is it possible that a government public health agency could purposefully lie to the American people and cause a worldwide panic? Uh, or, or is it just, or is it money? I don't no, think I, think, money. I, I, I think it's totally, look, also break it out. There are researchers at CDC working around the clock to try to figure out what was actually going on here and being real scientists and being cautious and all of that. And those folks need to be applauded. But when you look at the people in charge of CDC communication and the way they were communicating what they knew and did not know to the public, what they did effectively amounted to a massive miseducation propaganda campaign. It was horrific. I mean, I want to know, for example, has there been a single jewel or enjoy or whatever device implicated in any of these hospitalizations or deaths? And if the answer is no, why aren't they saying that, right? As soon as they had reason to believe, and you can look at, you know, the marijuana publication Leafly, you know, uh, track down who was one of the key small business operators who put this vitamin E acetate stuff onto the market, not realizing its health consequences. He just failed to do his due diligence, right? But a lot of this stuff was going a long time ago. So they're deliberately obfuscating the issue and not saying we have very strong reason to believe that it's illicit THC vape cartridges that are a major part of the problem and doing that at a much earlier period. I think that was grossly negligent. I look forward to the day when somebody forward freedom of information, FYA requests to those agencies to how, see how they handled and discussed their communications campaign. I'd love to see the same thing happen at some of the, you know, the heart and lung and other associations that are putting out this propaganda as well. Um, I, I basically think that these guys are responsible for killing people, not only failing to save the lives of people down the road who could benefit from switching to vaping, but literally by not letting people in the cannabis field know early on that this was a serious issue that they needed to pay attention to. 
Yeah, and the Leafly was great. It was actually September 6th when Leafly came out with that major trackdown article. And that's what we're saying is that how did the CDC not know? And in fact, actually, uh, San Francisco Chronicle came out with a piece on August 21st. August 21st, uh, talking, didn't talk about nicotine at all, talked about like 16 cases of this mysterious lung illness and all related to this pop-up marijuana, you know, illicit marijuana uh, uh, market that, you know, would pop up around San Francisco. So when you have the San Francisco Chronicle, which obviously highly progressive era, era, area, fully putting the nail, you know, hitting the nail on the head, you just wonder what's going on in CDC's mind when they're doing this. Let me ask you this. Um, who's the enemy here? Because when I look at it, I see it as an ideological issue. That's why it's not just about money. If you, if you talk about money, it doesn't explain everything. Uh, the crusading is not money. It's, it's, you know, it's ideology. And, you know, and I see that as progressivism. And I'll qualify that, um, Ethan, to the extent that progressivism can exist both on the left and the right. Yeah, and, you know, exactly. And Mitt Romney, you have Mitt Romney, you know, sitting next to President Trump advocating for full bans. He's no progressive. He happens to come from the state with the lowest smoking rate in the country. So he's probably less exposed to this and cares less about this. And as a Mormon, you know, they don't do any drugs, including cigarettes or tobacco. So I think you have folks on the right. I have to say, you know, you don't see a lot of folks on the right exactly stepping up on this politics in Congress. I mean, you have Ron Johnson, the, uh, you know, the Wisconsin senator, who's been a little bit out there, but cautious. You have Rand Paul, who has been very good on drug policy reform and this issue stepping up. So but the big push is clearly coming from the, the Democrats and from the progressives. And I think that's all to their shame and embarrassment. I mean, as I think, Brent, about what role I can play in this, right, one of the issues is you know, because I do have the credibility and connections built up over decades of advocating for drug policy reform, you know, and because I do not take any money whatsoever from any of the big tobacco or vaping companies, I'm in a position to, you know, bring my perspective to bear on this. At the same time, what's desperately needed in this field is an independent advocacy organization that receives absolutely no money from big tobacco or vaping, right? Basically, the role that George Soros, you know, I was out speaking on this issue in the late 80s and early 90s as a young professor at Princeton. And then in the summer of 92, I got a phone call from George Soros inviting me to lunch. He was intrigued by this fight over drug policy, and we hit it off. And the result was that I left the university and set up my organization and built it up, you know, initially with George as my sole supporter, Soros, and then building up it into much greater, you know, funding. What's needed in this area at this time is source of funding for an independent advocacy organization with no money received from big tobacco or vaping that can do what we did on illicit drug policy. That needs to happen on the communications front, right, on the advocacy front, on the lobbying front, right, that, that, that works with whoever they have commonality of interest with, which may be, you know, the e-cig companies, but by and large has to be fully independent. And so, you know, I'm beginning to think through how hard do I want to jump back into this? And is it worth reaching out to either the philanthropists who funded my work in the past or new sets of philanthropists? But somebody has to want to step up. Because when you ask who's the enemy here, I think the single greatest enemy right now is Mike Bloomberg. I mean, and I say that, you know, as a New Yorker 
who, although I didn't vote, vote for Mike Bloomberg, I admired a lot about what he did as the mayor of the city. He was terrible on some things I cared about, like marijuana arrests or, or um, now this issue. But I admired a lot of his political skills and things like that. But I have to say he is doing gross harm right now with what he's doing right now. And his money is and pervasive in academic institutions, in government institutions, in advocacy organizations, and in media. So um, please tell us that you've had a chat at least with George Soros about this. Well, you know, I, I, I raised the issue with him a few years ago, so I don't really see him anymore since I stepped down from my organization. And I think, you know, he was sort of intrigued, but at this point there are so many threats to open society all around the world. You look what's going on. You know, when he first only back in 90, 92, 93, that was a point where you know the Soviet Union had fallen, communism was falling, open societies were breaking out, out around the world, and where the war on drugs seemed like the one thing that was most antithetical to open society values in places that were generally moving in the right direction. Now, large parts of the world are moving against open society values. So, you know, I mean, Soros' you know, uh, foundation gives away almost a billion dollars a year but the amount that they have to deal with, uh, you know, it's hard to make the pitch to him to say do this. But there hopefully are others who will be out there because the battle – oh, the other paradox, of course, is that a company like Juul or Enjoy um, or the others are not able to advocate on their own behalf. They cannot, li they cannot legally pitch their products as harm reduction products. They cannot put out advertisements saying switch from smoking to – to, to jewel or to enjoy because these things will, this will be an improvement on your health. They can't do that. They can't even put out an ad saying the National Academy of Science, the CDC, and the Royal College of Physicians have all come to the conclusion that smokers should switch to vaping if they can't quit by other means. They're not legally allowed to say that until the FDA gives it, you know, thumbs up. You know, but you'll see a headline, FDA condemns Juul for claiming its products are safer than smoking. Others for claiming Something that's totally true. And when people don't read the small print that says, well, Juul can't do that because FDA has not yet given their okay to do that. So what we need to rapidly do is move in the direction of the British approach before the British approach becomes overwhelmed by the American approach. And that's exactly the issue, right? The, they've already started attacking, and Bloomberg is the worst of it. And to say that he's not affecting the content well, that whole organization's crooked, right? So they are now attacking in the largest possible way Public Health England, Royal College of Physicians, and all of the scientists and researchers that have been on our show and that you've been reading and that you know and that you've shared stages and platforms with. Bloomberg's yeah. going after them. Well, Brian, I also worry about you guys in Canada because Canada was looking like a relatively sane place on all this until quite recently. And all of a sudden, some of your mainstream serious media is doing the same types of distortions. as just the Toronto Globe and Mail, some other ones that we see in the U.S., stuff that is just flat out false, inaccurate, distortive. You know, I hope that your new health minister, who's been very good on national health minister, has been very good on illicit harm reduction issues, will be open in the right way here. But I mean, you know, politicians need a lot of balls or, you know, whatever in order to step up on this issue in the right way. In the Democratic the, irony, the, irony, the irony here in Canada is, is that this federal government, the Trudeau-led federal government, is the one that legalized vaping in Canada. They're the ones yeah. that legalized, legalized cannabis and they legalized... Uh, yeah, 
No, they should get it. They should get it. But you're in a, we're in a moral, you know, hysteria right now, a moral panic, a drug scare. And these things, nobody wants to get in the way of that. Nobody get, wants to get in the way of the freight train, freight train composed of upper and middle class white parents freaked out about their kids. You know, so, nobody wants to say to those parents, hey, look at the real science. Look what you're doing. Nobody wants to do that. So often we get the sense, and especially here in Canada, because it's, it, we're the first, you know, you know, G7 country that's made it cannabis legal and going through all of that issues and stuff like that. What I know for a fact is that the cannabis community, to the extent that it's a community, and there is a community of consumers and so forth, <clears throat> they don't want any part of this issue. They just consider nicotine, vaping, smoking. That's it. It's not our fight. We became legal. I've heard, I've heard, hold on. I've heard so many times from cannabis activists that, hey, guys, we just went through 70 years of this. I guess it's your turn now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, and I know, of course, people, you know, I am going to be speaking at a major marijuana um, uh, event called the Emerald Cup up in Santa Rosa, California this weekend. And I will be raising this issue there. And I'm beginning to let more and more of my allies and old allies and advocates, fellow advocates, know about this issue. Um, I think it's important, by the way, for us all to be clear about language. I know even when I was at the e Summit, some people in talking about the illicit tainted THC vape cartridges would just for shorthand say THC and forget to mention illicit tainted. Right. So it's very important that even people in the e-cigarette, nicotine e-cigarette area, as they're pointing their fingers at the real problem, be cautious about language. In the same way that if, if the marijuana effort were being affected by illicit tainted nicotine cartridges, people in this nicotine field would want to say, hey, wait, it's not nicotine cartridges. It's illicit tainted. So we have to be precise about the language right this. And we also have to watch out. We've been lucky in the sense that. THC and nicotine have not so far been getting combined in any of the cartridges that we're seeing, right? You have people who will buy the cigar papers to make blunts, you know, that have, you know, they put their marijuana in a tobacco, a flavored thing. But by and large, we've not seen the conjoining of the two ingredients. You have people you know, who smoke hashish and mix it in, in cigarettes, but we haven't seen that happening with vaping. I'm hoping that we don't see that happening in the future as well, because I think that would be a major I agree too. I do. So as we're as we're wrapping up, and we want to talk about what people can do. So, and that's a double portion. Let me just add that I think that it's extremely important for somehow the cannabis community and nicotine vaping community find a way to talk to each other. And because um, on the cannabis side, there is a long history of activism and fighting the same dirty tactics that have been deployed against vaping over the last five years and you know very extraordinarily in the last year and a half. And there's gotta be a way in which that they can see that the fight is joined. Because if there is going to be a 21st century war on drugs, that, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't include cannabis down the road either, right? Because oh, that's right. Things, I mean, I think the, the marijuana legalization thing seems increasingly secure, but there are always people. I mean, there are now people trying to use this tainted vape cartridge thing as a basis for further, you know, stopping the legalization or recriminalizing uh, uh, cannabis. So there is an air issue. There is a lot of commonality of interest here. Ultimately, the true commonality is grounded in, in, in science, in public health, uh, in compassion, and in human rights. I mean, that's really the commonality between the, the harm reduction and the, the cannabis legalization and the tobacco harm reduction, the e thing, when it comes right down to it. 
is science, is science corrupted the same way as it was during the war well, on drugs? It, it, it is very much so. When you, in fact, in some respects, it's almost worse in this area. When you have major scientific journals saying that they will not accept any publications submitted by scientists if they have any funding from tobacco companies or even sometimes e-cigarette companies, and even when those people may be people who have cut their teeth for decades on anti-smoking campaigns, people top-flight academics, I mean, that's a form of of bias and of closing off real you know, intellectual debate that just seems intolerable. When you have people trying to look at harm reduction, like how do you take these e-cigarettes and make them even less dangerous than they are? When you have the, the issue about is Jules 5.0, to what extent is that actually more addictive? We know it's going to be helpful for people trying to quit smoking, but what are the downsides in terms of novice users, et cetera? I mean, these you need these articles being published in scientific journals, but if on the one hand, you know, the companies are being told to do all this research, submit them to FDA, on the other hand, they're being banned from publishing stuff that they do either in-house or that they contract with others to do, you know, you have a real distortion in the process. You have a distortion in the process when key journals and their reviewers are biased against, against you know, reviewing or publishing harm reduction-oriented publications. You have a bias where, when if you can find a harm associated with it, then that generates, a, then that justifies publication. Whereas, if a research a study finds no harm from an e-cigarette, all of a sudden the, the finding of no harm doesn't seem to justify publication. So there are biases throughout this process, and then of course there's the funding issue. You know, John, you know, Mike Bloomberg has given a, a billion dollars, I think, to the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Right? I'm curious about whether a pro-harm reduction academic could get tenure. Now at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. I'm wondering the extent to which young academics who want to go in this area are being discouraged because all of the government funding is towards finding harm, 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 as opposed to looking at harm reduction potential. The National Institute on Drug Abuse used to say, oh, we're not going to fund research on medical marijuana or even much research on harm reduction because we're the National Institute on Drug Abuse, not, not drug use, right? You see the same phenomenon happening at the government level, both the federal government, you see with the state of California. So I think science is profoundly corrupted right now in this area. And the result, once again, is going to be devastating, both from the perspective of honest intellectual debate and knowledge, as well as for public health. So for the individual vapors that are trying to affect a change here, what's the message? Now, and I'm going to couch this in, in terms of one thing, like I use the language is it pitchfork time? Meaning actual pitchforks. But, and that's my, you know, that's my euphemism for civil disobedience, really. I mean, there's, I mean, at what level does it move from... Well, civil disobedience can play a role. I don't think it was particularly effective with respect to the marijuana area, although with medical marijuana, it was. It was with medical marijuana. It was with needle exchange. But obviously, organizing to meet with legislators being cut, you know, the more the better informed and educated personal vapors are, the more that they're able to respond to anything they see in the media rapidly with a letter to the editor saying you actually got this wrong and cite the scientific, you know, uh, uh, source for this. The more informed they are, the more effective they'll be as advocates. The better organized they are, the better they are at going and sitting down with members of city councils and state legislators with people who have a personal story, either about themselves or a relative, a loved one, saying, I was smoking, and the one thing that enabled me to quit smoking was vaping, and here's the evidence. 
to show that what I'm doing represents a dramatic improvement in my in my health, right? That type of self-education and organization is what's most needed. The tactics, whether civil disobedience has to play a role, it has to be done in a very thoughtful and strategic way, I think. So, um, well, there you go. Uh, I didn't have your Twitter up there in your key. I had your, I had the Open Society's uh, website and the DPA's uh, uh-huh. website. So, what's your Twitter um, handle? It's just at Ethan Nadelman, and just remember, Nadelman's got two ends at the end. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. And I highly recommend on this issue a lot now, and you know, so I'm, 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 I'm in this, Brent. I'm totally in it, and I'm galvanized and excited, and just trying to figure out how I can make the most positive contribution. Are you in it to win it? Totally. Why else? I mean, look, I should say, you know, you're in it. You're in it not just to win. You're in it because it's the right thing to do, right? And I'm in it because it's the right thing to do, and I very much plan and hope to win. Well, that's great, Ethan. Thank you so much for uh, some great hopeful messaging and some frank discussion on this issue. Just hang tight for a second here before uh, we go. I have to close up. Okay. And, and, and let me just say, oh, can sure. I just say to you, I, I so much appreciate what you're doing on this on this issue. And I would say when I look at your other guests, I feel like I'm an incredibly distinguished company when I look at the other guests that you've had on this show. So thank you for doing what you're doing as well. I really appreciate it. I think it's making a valuable contribution. Well, I appreciate that, Ethan. Thank you so much. And, you know, it is what it is. It's a battle worth fighting, that's for sure. Well, that's it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go to support.regulatorwatch.com, dig into that wallet, find a few dollars, kick them over to us. You will feel very good for it. Trust me, you will. And also stop by Facebook and uh, follow us on Twitter. Thank you very much. If you have a vape, vape on.